Hello and welcome back to the Cloyster Bell podcast hosted by Rob and Liam. In this podcast we will be discussing my favourite John Pertwee story, The Sea Devils. Hi everyone and welcome back. Hope you're all fine and dandy. I'm Liam and I'm joined by Rob. Hi Rob. Hello everyone. How are you doing? Not bad, thanks. Um, I'm quite excited to be on to our second Pertwee adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, last week's was my choice, Frontier, and this is yours, The Sea Devils. Come to think of it, it's probably one of my favourites as well. So. Yeah, I was I was going to come on to that because uh, I remember you saying that uh, when you were deciding your choice, it was going to be between Frontier, which obviously won out, and the Sea Devils. What was the what was the thing that sort of tipped Frontier more than the Sea Devils? I think it was because Frontier felt like it had a much larger scope to it, um, mm. just in my distant memory. But now, in retrospect, I've watched the Sea Devils, and there's lots of actual relocations and stock footage and things like that of the submarines and they've got so many relocations um, now it feels like Sea Devils is probably um, one, possibly one of the better stories <laughs> <laughs> well this is well hang on because this is coming up to a point I was going to discuss later on but may as well mention it here when it came to you picking your favourite Hartnell story and your favourite Troughton story did you find that comparatively easy compared to picking your Pertwee story yes going back to the Hartnell and Troughton eras there's mm-hmm. not that many stories that I'm particularly invested in because mm-hmm. there was only so many um, I saw when I was a child but when it comes to the Pertwee era and the Doctors that follow there's quite a lot of stories I know quite quite well quite intimately so it's, it's a harder one to pick. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, because actually, I think... I mean, not to deride the, the Hartnell era and the Trout era, because they're both really good. But um, when it came to picking my favourites for those two Doctors, I found that quite easy to you know just go straight forward and pick. Um, so like with the Hartnell stories, you know, there's, there's a very clear delineation between those three years of uh, the science fiction stories and the historicals. And I think, largely speaking, I you know if you, I think it's very easy to decide which of those styles that you prefer. Um, and I think the fact that we both picked two historical stories, I think we'd quite easily say that the historicals in the Hartnell era um, were a lot better than the science fiction ones. That isn't to say that the other ones were were um, were poor, but um, that the historicals just had that certain edge on them. So if that's your approach, then obviously that that automatically whittles down the sort of the, the stories that you're going to pick as your favourites. Uh, and the Troughton era, I think, has a has a problem with the vast majority of the stories. Even though you know we uh, the fact that a few years back we had uh, the enemy of the world and the web of fear uh, be rediscovered, the Troughton era is the one that most affected. There's very there's a lot of episodes that we cannot watch. So that automatically 
in terms of stories you can watch obviously right that limits to what you can watch and then whether you like them or not it's sort of so it's it's very easy to pick well that one's the best of the ones that we can watch then with the then with the Pertwee era this is when I really started to struggle because even though I said right the Sea Devils is my favorite uh John Pertwee story I then was going well is it because you've got Inferno you know which is really good you've got Day of the Daleks which is really good you've got Curse of Peladon and they had all these, and then I started to second guess myself whether I picked the right one or not. Um, the problem is, each Doctor has their own eras as well, defined by different companions. There's um, all these different seasons do change over time, especially with the later Doctors. And I found this hard when I was picking my Tom Baker story that we'll mm-hmm. review in a few weeks. Yeah. Um, the one I chose wasn't initially even in the running. I had a handful of stories. I thought well, it's definitely going to be one of these. Hmm. I thought, mm, I'll have a quick read through, see what other stories there is. And then there was, of course, a standout one, um, which I didn't even consider for some reason. There's hmm. so, many, oh, so okay. many good stories. How can I only pick one? Yeah, it, it, it's getting a little bit tricky now. So I agree with you. Seth. I think I find the Tom Baker era, the, the Tom Baker story that I've picked, uh, I found very easy because... That actually not only happens to be my favourite Tom Baker story, it's my favourite Doctor Who story, full stop. But you're right with the, the Tom Baker era, again, there's an awful lot to uh, to pick from. But again, it goes into that the thing that you were talking about, because even within, with each Doctor, especially with the Pertwee era and certainly the Tom Baker era, there are eras within it. Uh, as you said, you've got different companions, but with the Tom Baker era, you've even got, he, you know, he had three producers as well as the, you know, the, the different script editors. So there's, you know, the, the Philip Hinchcliffe era is completely different to the the, uh, the Graham Williams era, which is completely different to when John Nathan Turner produced uh, Tom Baker's final season. So you've got different styles. But obviously we, we'll, we'll talk, to the, uh, talk about that later on. But um, just some Doctor Who news. So at the time of recording last week, we started to hear hints that there was a big... Doctor Who story that was due to to break out, but it had been embargoed. Um, some people had been informed of the story, and this started rumours. The obvious ones were that um, we haven't, you know, we had a missing story uh, get you know, rediscovered. But that 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 rumour always sort of like circulates. It used to be once every few years, but now it seems to be every once, five once minutes. <laughs> yeah. But then uh, the one one or two people who were starting to say it might be Christopher Eccleston's going to be doing a big finish. As if that would happen. Yeah, as if. But then people said, well, people said that about him doing Doctor Who conventions and look what happened there. So maybe. So I think that at that point, you know, people were were hoping. Uh, But then the news broke and indeed... Christopher Eccleston is returning as the Doctor in the Big Finish Audio Adventures, which is bloody amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. What was your reaction when you first found? Because I think we've, I think it was like a difference of five minutes of us finding out. What was, uh, what was your reaction? Well, of course, I wasn't expecting it. It's very big mm. news, as you say. It, it was very hard to believe that he would want to return. You know, in recent years, he spoke about all the difficulties had, and. I, don't, I wouldn't say if he's had resentment for the show, but definitely for um, the way it all went down. It yeah. was a bit unpleasant for him. I felt like it might be a similar situation to Tom Baker, where decades down the line, he may kind of grow towards um, appreciating the show a bit more. 
but mm. um, notes came around quite quickly. <laughs> it has, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting with Tom Baker because Tom Baker never resented his time as, as being the Doctor. He always loved it, and he always recognised the importance of it um, in terms of you know him being this this childhood hero and what his performance, his interpretation of the character meant for an awful lot of people. But yeah, but obviously it typecast him an awful lot. Um, yeah. So I think it was I think it was that where he tried to you know he tried to distance himself from the show as much as possible. But it, there was never a resentment. That isn't to say that Christopher Eccleston has had a resentment. But yeah, he, you know, as as the end you can of, only imagine, can't you? What uh, yeah, uh, I mean, he's he's been open and frank up to a certain point. Um, but you get you you know, I think we've got enough information to know that it was a very difficult time for him. Um, for for a number of reasons, um, but ever well, one being a, a remarkable actor, but uh, but also the, the um, being incredibly professional. None of that transpires on the screen, um, and th- there are all sorts of reasons why when the show came back in two thousand five, it proved to be a success. But uh, what Christopher Eccleston did um, in terms of playing the Doctor was no no small. Uh, it was no minor thing. He did an absolutely remarkable thing, and you know, for only being in one season, um, he he made an indelible impression. And there are people out there, you know, for, you know, for whom Christopher Eccleston is their Doctor. Um, yeah, and it's absolutely amazing that now it's sort of like enough time has passed, and now he, you know, he must look back on his time with affection uh, to a certain extent, and certainly be very proud for what he did, and rightly so. Um, it's fantastic he's uh, reprising the role. Yes. And as you can expect, people always want more, don't they? Um, mm. Of course, it would be amazing if he did come back to the show. Mm-hmm. Of course, for like the 60th anniversary. But I think coming back for Big Finish, um, you know, it's no half measure. The audio is, is, is a good thing in its own right. It's not, mm-hmm. um, it's not half of the TV show. And if this is all we get, I do appreciate that. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's it's sort of. Um, I think this is going to be one line of Doctor Who audio adventures, which I think. I mean, nothing to, to take away from, you know, Peter Davison, Colin Baker, Sylvester McCoy, and indeed, uh, and of course Tom Baker. Not to take away away from them, but they had a good innings with the television adventures. I think Christopher Eccleston, along with Paul McGann, I think. I mean, certainly for, from my point of view, are probably going to be the main focus for me because I mean Paul McGann only appeared in the television movie um, as well as the, the mini episode um, for the 50th anniversary where he regenerated that's another example where he came back um, for the character's death to bring it full circle but it leaves yeah. you wanting more doesn't it uh, yeah it's oh, I mean for the few minutes he was there it was just an absolutely fantastic performance it was you know it was really really good but at least we've got Big Finish where he you know he's got these adventures where he is playing the role again and I think for a lot of people, it's like Christopher Eccleston's, fun, you know, brilliant. We've uh, we've got we've got more adventures of um, a Doctor who was only in thirteen adventures, but now he's got more. Yeah, um, it's going to be interesting to see what Big Finish does with that in terms of where it places the Eccleston adventures. I mean, will it be at the end of Rose when the TARDIS dematerializes, but before he comes back to pick Rose up? Um, there is a. I do remember with BBC books, there was six books in the Ninth Doctor era. 
Mm-hmm. And at the time, I you know I bought them, I bought them up straight away. Uh, there wasn't much Doctor Who merchandise out, but I think in 2005, 2006, I did buy most of it. Mm-hmm. Little jigsaws, mugs, you name it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but these six books that came out, um, they did slot in in two segments of of Chris Ferguson's series. The first three just contained rows. I remember enjoying them quite a bit. Um, it would be hard to place them in between specific episodes. But the latter three stories had Rose and Captain Jack. So you can conclusively pinpoint that in between um, The Doctor's Answers and Boomtown. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it does, if, of course, the Billy, Pi- Billy Piper came back and John Barrowman came back, um, who are both also... Um, they have both also been doing big finish work. You know, it's it's not yeah. in the realm of uh, it's in the realm of possibility. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that'd be the, the obvious thing. What's interesting though is that um, some people have have, uh, have said this, and um, they really don't want Rose in the stories. And it's it's quite interesting. I think as years has uh, years have gone on, a lot of people don't seem to like the character anymore. Mm. I mean, I really, not a lot of people, but a significant number of people seem to be quite vocal about not liking the character, which is sort of interesting. Yeah. Um, um, I think um, if they are very vague about when it's set, I think that would be a clever move because it, they wouldn't be tied down with too much continuity. Mm. Um, because they'd be basically stepping on eggshells, you know, what can they reference, what can't they reference... Um, there is an example of a big finish, the the light at the end, which was Big Finish's story for the 50th anniversary. It starts off with the Eighth Doctor and Charlie Pollard, and it's roughly set in their first series of audio adventures. But on the behind the scenes, Nick Briggs says he intentionally didn't place it in between two specific stories, you know, because um, it would cause too many. It could cause issues, you know, with the continuity. So yeah, they the intentionally left it a bit vague. And if they do that with the ninth Doctor thing, I'll be fine with that. It doesn't have to slot in in between two scenes of an episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I think that is a bit uh, that is a bit much. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably the best uh, best best approach to take. And then maybe chucking a reference to yes. Bad Wolf, for, you know, once in a while. But that'll be it. Um, but if, yeah, of course, if he does, if he does spend four entire box sets without Rose, it does beg the question: When is this set? <laughs> He's just left mm. Rose behind somewhere. But I mean, the, the, the fact with Rose, you know, it, uh, is it Clive, the chap who's done all the the research and's got all the photos of the Doctor? Is that yeah, right? is that, yeah. Um, so there's these fo- these uh, they were impressive at the time, believe me. But what look now badly photoshopped. <laughs> um, Sorry, I shouldn't criticise because at the time in two thousand five, it, it did look quite impressive. Um, but um, the, these photos of the you know they was at the Titanic, and I think it was on the grassy knoll before Kennedy got assassinated. And there's one or two things where he's clearly the Eccleston's doctor is clearly on his own. So there's this idea that Eccleston's doctor had adventures on his own. So that is sort of already established. Yes, um, and I think well, I can't really speak for the fans, but I get the impression a lot of people seem to presume that these images of Eccleston, uh, of the name's Doctor, are all set before Rose, mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily the case. 
No, but that I mean that 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 shot where he looks himself in the mirror. Yes. Could uh, could easily be. Re- yeah, could easily be misinterpreted. You could it be interpreted as just looking in the mirror in general, or that's the first time he's seeing his new face. It's sort of yes. Oh, actually, it's not it, set in stone. it just brings to mind Big Finish has done a Titanic story, I think, set before Rose. All oh, right, okay. I think it's a short story. I'm sure they announced that. Someone will probably tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> oh, there's always someone telling you that you're wrong, but <laughs> not you specifically, Rob. I mean, just anyway. Uh... Oh god, that's it. That came across as bitchy, and it wasn't meant to. <laughs> Sorry, um, but yes, great news. Um, anything else you want to talk about? No, I don't think so. Uh, of course, we can mention the other podcasts because anyone just tuning in, me and Liam have been revisiting all the doctors, picking one of our favourite stories every other week. So one week yeah. it's my turn, one one week it's Liam's turn. Uh-huh. Um, of course, this is our second week of John Pertwee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Um, so, yeah, as as Rob said, we've discussed our favourite Hartnell and Troughton story. So if you like to hear us discuss the Aztecs, the Crusade, the Tomb of the Cybermen and the Invasion, do check those out. Yeah, uh, We've also discussed all the Jodie Whittaker stories. Uh, and our back catalogue also includes reviews of other stories, including the first five big Finnish audio adventures. Uh, so do check those out um, please also get in contact uh, talk about Doctor Who in general just drop us a line um, but also when we prepare um, to record we, we we do like to include listeners responses to, to the stories um, Twitter's probably the, uh, the easiest you can find us there at, at podcast bell uh, we're also on Instagram at cloister underscore bell uh, Facebook if anyone remembers that we're on that as well uh, and our website is cloisterbellpodcast or as one word dot com yep and if you've forgotten everything Liam just said it's all on the website <laughs> so, it, so if you do yeah. go on the website if you click on the podcast you can press submit something and that will give you um, a few more details about what to send us how to send it Fantastic, and I know that you uh, listeners can also uh, s- sign up to a newsletter. Is, is that right, Rob? Yes, that's right. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so, just as a quick reminder, our website is cloisterbellpodcast.com. Yeah, and submit something. Oh, and drop yeah. us a review. <laughs> do all those. Uh, yeah, do, do drop us a review. That would be great. Thanks very much. So, folks, on to my favourite John Pertwee story, The Sea Devils. So, first of all, just a quick plot synopsis. I say a quick, it's it's a few paragraphs. <laughs> it was supposed to be a lot more concise, but hopefully this is uh, this is listenable. Um, let me know, Rob, if, <laughs> if it's too long at the end. <laughs> Get on with it. Okay. The Doctor and Joe visit the Master in his high-security prison following on from his capture at the end of the Demons on an island off the south coast of England and hear from the Governor, Colonel Trenchard, that ships have been mysteriously disappearing at sea. Investigating, the Doctor learns from Captain Hart, commander of a nearby naval base, that the sinkings have centred around an abandoned sea fort. He and Joe then visit the fort and are attacked by what one of the men there terms a sea devil, an amphibious breed of the prehistoric creatures encountered by the Doctor shortly after his exile to Earth. The Master, aided by a misguided trenchard, is stealing equipment from the naval base in order to build a machine to revive the sea devils from hibernation. 
The Doctor takes a diving bell down to the Sea Devil's underwater base to try to encourage peace. His efforts are frustrated by a depth charge attack ordered by a pompous civil servant, Walker. But in the confusion, he manages to free a captured submarine and escape back to the surface. The Sea Devils then capture the naval base, and the Master has the Doctor taken back to their control centre where he forces him to help finish the machine. The Doctor sabotages the machine and the two Time Lords escape together just as the base is destroyed in an explosion. So, cast and crew. The story is directed by Michael E. Bryant. It was written by Malcolm Hook. Produced by Barry Letts. Music was by Malcolm Clark. That'll be a talking point, I'm sure, during this review. Uh, the Doctor was played by John Pertwee, Joe Grant, Katie Manning. Third Officer Jane Blythe, June Murphy. Captain Hart was played by Edwin Richfield. The Chief Sea Devil, Peter Forbes Robertson. Commander Ridgeway was played by Donald Sumpter. The Master was, of course, played by Roger Delgado. Trenchard was played by Clive Morton. And Walker was played by Martin Bodie. When we were discussing Frontier and Space, Rob mentioned, you know, he remembered buying uh, that story on glorious double video pack VHS. Uh, and I remember buying the Sea Devils in glorious double video pack in VHS, <laughs> which, like the fr- Frontier and Space, was also accompanied by a limited edition postcard uh, of the, the video artwork, which, uh, in fact, because I remember Northumberland Street used to have Virgin Megastore. Well, uh, well, a virgin store. Uh, and I bought the Sea Devils there. Great. I got it for my birthday. Remember, waking up and unwrapping it. Oh, that, that's cool. Um, I just remember buying it in a shop. <laughs> <laughs> I was excited because um, I'd already had the Warriors of the Deep. Ah, right. And the idea of um, a recurring villain. All these mm. stories that tie together. I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> but I did like the Sea, De- sea Devils better. <laughs> good man um i mean the thing is with the sea devils because it's 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 seen as a, a sequel to doctor who and the silurians which at this point um i had ne- i'd never seen i didn't see doctor who and the silurians until it, uh, the bbc repeated it i think it was sometime in 2002 the sea devils does reference that story uh on a, a in a, a couple of scenes where um the doctor and joe talk about it so it's, it's explained. You don't have to have seen Doctor Who and the Silurians to to recognise what Sea Devils is about. And in fact, the, the story pretty much stands on its own two feet. And the Sea Devils is a story that I have, I've always enjoyed. And it was a, a story that always um, stuck with me to the point where, you know, because, you know, I watched, I watched this as a kid and it just stood out as something really special. And and then from that point on, every time I was near the sea or near the beach, because the, the the Sea Devils is iconic and it just became seared into my memory, and I never saw going to the beach in the same way ever again. I mean, did you ever have that? No, it didn't have that kind of effect on me. <laughs> I just couldn't help it. It was just, I mean, I did, I mean, I didn't expect you know the Sea Devils to arise, although I bloody wanted them to, but it it, it just. It just automatically made me think of the Sea Devils. It just, um, I just loved the story so much and the iconography of it. Earlier on, when we were talking about, you know, your love of Frontier and Space and your reasons for picking that, um, but you also talked about the, the, the scope of the Sea Devils and its its location work. It, it is, I mean, in many respects, the Sea Devils is a sort of like a typical John Pertwee story. You know, it's, it's set on Earth, um, 
which most, not all, but most of John Pertwee's stories were. You know, you had UNIT, but on this story we don't have UNIT, but we have the Royal Navy. And even though I think UNIT was a, it was a very good concept and was established incredibly well in the, in the series, and, you know, and I love UNIT, and of course headed by uh, Lethbridge Stewart, who's, who's one of the most beloved characters in the series. You know, I love all that setup, and I love those characters. The fact that it's the Royal Navy, um, you know, a real thing, unlike UNIT, which is fictional, although yes. believable, but fictional. Um, the Royal Navy is a, is, is a real thing, and they're there. They've got all the best toys. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah. The hovercraft. Oh, the hovercraft. The submarines. The submarines. I mean, it's all there. It's fantastic. And um, the Royal Navy uh, provided all their services for f- free, really. Uh, for the to, Yeah, exactly, to the production team. Because the Royal Navy just thought, it's good advertising for us. If they want to use us, great. And uh, it's just, you know, the fact that they recognise, you know, the Doctor Who is this just beloved show and we can be involved with it um, in this, this nice, entertaining way, I just think is really impressive. But it, again, it gives this... It, it, it grounds uh, the show further into believability. Um but it also lends the story this this tremendous scope, because you've got a real navy, you know, naval base which is used, um, with all the you know you're seeing the guns used and all the rest of it. And you know, yeah, there's, uh, there's no wobbly sets. No, there's no wobbly sets at all. Even the stuff that's obviously set in the studio, it's it's really well designed and solid. You wouldn't know. No, no, you, you don't. I mean, it, it blends in really well. I love the, the design of this and how everything's realised. It's just a, a cracking good story. Everything, the, the, the way that the story starts from, from the moment, I mean, we have this great scene where we have a, a man absolutely in panic and he, he's talking into a radio station about how they're being attacked. And then we just see this sort of, this lizard hand grab the microphone and destroy it. And this man just screams with absolute terror. That's a that's a tremendous introduction to, to any story. And yeah. In fact, Terror of the Zygons, um, which comes a few years later and is a is a um, a Tom Baker story, pretty much starts off in exactly the same way. I mean, it's a you know it's a tremendous introduction, and if it works, why not reuse it? Um, but the Sea Devils got there first. Uh, you know, it, it captivates you from from the off. You know, there's this threat. So after that fantastic introduction, we, we then we also have the Doctor and Joe visiting the Master in prison, which uh, the previous season, uh, season eight, was the the season in which the Master appears in every single story, which Barry Letts and uh, the producer and um, Terence Sticks, the script editor, said they later regretted to d- doing that uh, because it made the series a bit predictable. But I actually think the way that they did that. Uh, because it's it's woven into the stories, it's it's not lazily done. Um, I think lends that series tremendous um, a, a great identity and this this constant threat. But you know the master keeps on changing his plans, and each story is varied. But it ends on the demons, which uh, is a highly regarded John Pertwee story. Which, to be perfectly honest, I've never understood why. Um, it's perfectly fine. I, you know, but the, the demons has this absolutely tremendous reputation for representing everything that the John Pertwee era did and did right. 
Personally, I think that reputation is more deserving in the Sea Devils. I mean, obviously, I would say that because I picked it as my favorite poetry story. Um, but, you know, the, at the end of the Demons, the Master was captured, and now we, we continue that a few stories later, and here he is in prison. And, um, you know, the, the Doctor's made aware that there are these mysterious um, events taking place at sea. But we also have some nice character interactions at this moment. We, we, we uh, I love that whole thing, how it's written and performed, you know, the, the, the fact of how the Doctor and uh, Joe are visiting the Master and their whole interaction. Um, a lot is said through body language, n- not necessarily with what is being said. I just think it's a really nice scene. It's just nice character-led stuff. But of course it ends on the fact, you know, it, it's that wonderful thing where you know, they say goodbye. I mean, it's a, brief, it's a very brief scene. <laughs> In some respects, it's quite funny. They've spent all that time getting there through manual transport. They haven't used the TARDIS. And then they only see him for, what, what was it, two minutes? Yeah. And <laughs> um, was the Doctor a bit naive to think that they could hold the Master? No, I think, I think he was hopeful. But I think maybe, I mean, that would explain another reason why why he's gone to visit there. He wants to check the the security arrangements. Mm. Um, But anyway, despite how fleeting it is, it is a nice scene. And I quite like how it ends with, uh, you know, they're about to shake hands and then the the doctor stops himself and sort of raises his hand in a friendly greeting and then walks out the room and then the master just, like, laps his head off because he (laughs) thinks the doll thing's funny. It's just great. I love it. Um, But also the doctor... Well, the master presumed he'd also came to investigate the missing ships, so that kind of justifies the whole trip. Yeah, that's true. But of course, the uh, the, the doctor only becomes aware of it through Trenchard. Yes. Um, just happened happening to mention it, but that 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 one. I mean, if Trenchard had hadn't mentioned that, then there was <laughs> the. <laughs> The master would have warned, the sea devils were running over the earth, and you know we'd all be dead. We yeah. wouldn't be here. Um... This so this story, um, it's quite it's quite similar to Frontier because in both stories the Master is trying to start a war between the two two races. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bit of a similarity yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, it, it, you're right. It is. He's a, he's a bloody warmonger, that Master. Um, and again, I, I quite like the, the the following scene where um, they're in Trenchyard's office, but it's just the Doctor and Joe, you know, and. The doctor's quite sad about you know the, the fact that the master has gone down this route and um, has had to be imprisoned, and then it's, it's actually in this story where it's established with just this one line of dialogue where the you doctor might say actually, that we went to yeah, school together. Yeah, yeah, that you know we used to you know he used to be a friend of mine once. Yeah, in fact, you might say we almost at school together. It's. Um, so one that uh, establishes something else to do with their relationship and there's a little hint yeah it's of, very very vague it is very vague but it's you know a lot a lot is said with a little it is vague but then at the same time you you learn an awful lot about the relationship the fact that you know they used to be friends is um is quite significant and quite a quite an interesting development uh, i like that an awful lot um it's uh, because the master was originally conceived as a sort of Moriarty-like figure to the Doctor's Sherlock Holmes-like character. Is how um, 
Barry Letts and Terence Sticks had you know, concocted the um, the character. But they very you know, but they they create a character and develop them very much in their in their own way, and they enrich it in their own way. Um, there have been sort of attempts and suggestions later on down the line that maybe they were brothers, um, but that hasn't really got anywhere. No, and of uh, course they, because of the timeless children, mm-hmm. we know that they probably weren't. No, no, but I mean, even in, I think it's The Sound of Drums, Martha says, were well, your brothers, and the doctor just go, scoffs, uh, the doctor just scoffs at the idea. Yeah. Um, but I think that's, I mean, fine, you could, I suppose you can make that, that, that idea work, but it's, it's not the best. I mean, look at the James Bond movie Spectre, making Blofeld, James Bond's step, oh, anyway, don't get me started. <laughs> um, but I like, I like this development, you know, they used to be friends, um, but they're not anymore. It's, you know, has it never been explored? Um, what went on between them? What was the tipping point that made the master the master? Well, of course we know Russell T. Davis' take on it, the the whole mm-hmm. um, the drum beat send them crazy or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's it's never been explored. What actually changed between them? Has it? No, that, no, no. That that's true. I mean, at, at this. During this period of the show, the John Pertwee era, it's it's very much, I think, established that their differences very much lie in the fact of just philosophical differences. There's a great scene in Colony in Space where um, where, where this is really hinted. Well, it's not hinted at; it's 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 put out in in quite clear terms. The, the master's talking about power and how that's the meaning of essentially the meaning of life, and how everything is all about seeking dominance uh and that's his thing and he's willing to share that power with with the doctor but he you know basically that's what um life's about and the doctor's like no it isn't it's all about learning and um improving oneself and those around you and that's that sort of thing and he you know and then the doctor says you know i want to explore the universe not rule it um so that's what their differences are um, and I mean nothing towards what Russell T. Davis uh, did because it works during that period of the show uh, the side of drums and the time war and everything like that but um, I much prefer the differences between the Doctor and the Master during this era uh, I think mm. it's because I can relate to it more relate to it more it's um, it's much more believable and you can see the differences because it's 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 a difference in viewpoints. I guess we can all relate to when people are kind of at odds with each other because um, when two people believe fundamentally different things, mm. you know, they're kind of opposed to each other, aren't they, I guess? There's always going to be a bit of a conflict of interest. Whether it needs to be explored or not is another matter, but it's um, it's sort of interesting. I wonder how how far and what the tipping point was when they felt that the, the other person's view fo- viewpoint was just too much. Yeah. But it's interesting, though, that the fact that they were friends, and even though they're bitter enemies, the fact that they were friends still means an awful lot to them in a funny sort of way, which is one thing which I think has been, for, not always, but for the most part, has been consistent. But perhaps not with the Anthony Ainley master, but I think with certainly with Roger Delgado's master and, um, and with John Sins and Missy, certainly, when Peter Capaldi was the Doctor. 
the fact that they want friends still means an awful lot to them. Yeah, it's almost as if they're family. I guess that's mm-hmm. where the, the idea of them being brothers stems from, because you you can fight with your family, but at the end of the day, you're still family. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. You've got these differences, <laughs> but you know, you're still still stuck with each other. <laughs> yeah, damn them, Brexit. Um, but yeah, and but I mean, all all this is really established here with just that really nice scene with um, you know Joe recognizing you know the doctor's feeling quite emotional about it, and you know the, the doctor being open about it with just that that one line. But yeah. it's great. I think it's a um, line line we all remember. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, because I think it's a, it's a good line in terms of dialogue. It's believable, but. Um, John Pertwee delivers it really well. You know, he, uh, you know, this is a man who is, you know, reflecting and being mm, quite fond memories. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's 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 a great little scene. So I think that's that's one reason why the story stands out for me. It's uh, it's this big, colourful adventure, but it's it's coloured with some some nice character, mo- you know, character moments, some emotion. There's also some humour, because you say that I think for, for most people this is a scene that they remember. But of course, there's another famous scene. I think you know which one I'm going to say. A humorous scene. Mm. I don't know. The close-up of the sea devil's face. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, it's cruel. No, it's not. No, no, it's intentionally humorous. Oh. It's with the master. Oh yes. The clangers, <laughs> the clangers. It's great as well. Uh, I mean, this is the. Th- was he so, joking? Yeah, of course he was. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> debatable. So anyway, one thing that we quickly establish is that even though the master is a prisoner and uh, the prison is headed by Colonel Trenchard, the master has a hold over Trenchard, and. Uh, when this story was originally broadcast in the very early 70s, even though the show was made in colour, very few people had a colour television set. Most people still had a black and white television set in Britain. There's a great little scene here, which I think, set, for the for the time when this was originally broadcast, I think says an awful lot. Um, I mean, it, there are other examples in the story which are much more obvious and, and, ha- and haven't dated. But there's one moment very early on when you know that the master is in complete control, when he when, when he orders another television set in the in his bedroom in his cell, a color one, and a color one, the audacity of the man! <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's um, so so I like I like that. It's just a nice little moment. It's just which I think at the time the story was originally broadcast said an awful lot. Not only does he want another television set. Which, again, at the time, Holmes would probably have only had one in the living room. So he wants he wants another one, jammy git, and he wants it in colour. So I like that. But anyway, th- what this literally establishes is that he, he ends up watching television and he sees he's watching the clangers. And the master seems quite, quite amused by this kid's television programme. And Trenchard's confused he's, why he's watching this. And the master says... It seems to be a very interesting life form. And Trenchard's like, it's only a kid's show. I love Roger Delgado's <laughs> So he just goes, oh. And then he goes to turn the television set off. <laughs> but we, the audience, see the master's reaction. 
Which I interpret as exasperation of going, this man's so witless, he didn't get out of his joking. But that's how I interpret it. But I mean, yeah. you, you could say yeah, he actually thinks the clangers is a real thing. I'm going to put it to Twitter now. Um, quick question. <laughs> Do you think the Master really thought the clangers were alien life forms? Or was he bullshit and trenchant? <laughs> yeah, ask that. We'll see if we get any responses by yeah. the end of the end yeah. of uh, the podcast. Great. And in fact, it's it, it's funny because I think that's a scene that's that's stuck with a lot of people. And in fact, because Russell T. Davis uh, referenced it and did a modern take of it, and um, again, I think it was the sound of drums. But on that occasion, the master's watching the Teletubbies. Yes. Did you really think they were real then? Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. The Clangers has came back since, so I wonder if Russell oh, would, have, would have would have included the Clangers if they'd been back then. Oh yeah, it would have been quite nice if he had. Yeah, the Clangers have come back. I forgot about that. Uh, with I think Michael Palin doing the um, doing the narration for it. It's nice. You can forget it. I've got to watch the thing. Have you been watching it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Under duress. <laughs> um, speaking of the kids, I was watching The Sea Devils on Britbox Brit on my phone. Okay, yeah. And my youngest daughter came up to me. And, and you know, the music for um, The Sea Devils. Mm. It's very electronic and there's beeps and <laughs> hums and all this. And she yeah. comes over and she's are you, are you playing a new game? <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose you could say that their music hasn't dated in that sense. Of course, so you've mentioned it, okay. So... Um, the music is, is done by Malcolm Clark, who's one of the most uh, distinctive composers that, that the show has had. Um, and I think the music for the Sea Devils is going to be one of those things which is going to be make or break for you. Uh, because it is very distinctive. And you can't get away from it. It's not as if... I mean, it's not subtle. It does stand out. I think what the most think the, the most eccentric part that stands out has to be the the uh, sword fight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what earth's a prison doing with having swords on the wall where the prisoners can easily access? That's what yeah. I want to know. Mm. Um, what 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 are your thoughts on the music? I've always no, noticed it was a bit unique. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But um, I don't know. I'm happy with it. <laughs> yeah, and I. I'm one of those people, I absolutely love the music in this. Um, I mean, one in of itself, I think it's what what Malcolm Clark was able to do with this huge synthesizer um, that they had. I mean, not forgetting this is the early 1970s, to, to create electronic music. I mean, it wasn't digital. This was analog um, electronic music. Uh, and so to be able to create something under, you know... Th- you're fighting with resistors and transistors and all this thing. It's just, I think it's amazing to create a full musical score under, I mean, I don't know the actual timescale, but probably wasn't an awful lot of time in order to produce something. So so, so the, the fact it was able to be made, I think, is impressive enough. Um, and the fact that it's been scored in sync with the fight scene. <laughs> yes, exactly. All that, I just think, you know, wow, hats off to Malcolm Clark for what he had to do, for what he wanted to do, and was able to do it. I think, you know, given the difficulties of doing it, I think is immensely impressive. But not only that, not only do you think it is an impressive feat in that sense, but I also really like the music. Um, 
I think the music suits the tone and the feel and the settings of it. The, the, it's a bit difficult to explain because it's an intangible quality, but there's something about the sound of that synthesizer that he used, to me, seems to suggest the sea and the ocean. Um, I think the music suits the story incredibly well. Yeah, I absolutely love it. But I know that, you know, for some people, I can kind of see where they're coming from because um, I suppose you could say that, you know, it's one of those music scores, Marmite, you either love it or you hate it. And also, I know for some people it's it's too distracting. It's a bit too much. Uh, but for me, I just think, it, for me, it's, it's one of those elements which, again, raises the Sea Devils because it's got this absolutely amazing soundtrack, um, which is unique to the story, uh, but suits it incredibly well. Just while we're talking about the music, um, we got a response on Twitter from John Lane. He said, with regards to the Sea Devils, probably would have been better as a four-parter, but still cool, if only for that scene where the Master is clearly disappointed to discover that the Clangers is a kid's show. Also, the music sometimes feels like a rusty nail on the brain. I'll always watch it, though. A rusty nail on the brain, jeez. Um, not a fan. <laughs> well, I mean, again, fair enough, because as I say, it, it, it is a very distinctive um, soundtrack. Uh, so fair enough. But as I said, I, I, I really, really love it. Just to answer that point um, of it perhaps being too long, I know there is this thing, especially when it comes to classic Doctor Who, really the, the optimal perfect length for a classic Doctor Who story really should have been four episodes. Um, and I can kind of see where people are coming from, but I think on occasion, uh, a six-parter works very well. Uh, and more often than not, actually, I think it works very well if you if you manage to keep the pacing up. Um, and that's the tricky thing. And I think the Sea Devils is paced very well. Um, I mean, the Sea Devils is six episodes long. If it was four, what do you get rid of? Get rid of some of the location shots, you know, the ship. Don't need that. <laughs> the hovercraft, just... just cut that out. <laughs> now, what do you cut out? It really is paced quite well. Um, it's interesting comparing it to Frontier because we said that story did retread over a lot of the same sets. I wouldn't say the same about this story, even though, of course, you do revisit a lot of the same locations. Mm-hmm. But there's a, there's there's a lot of variety. I mean, you still had a lot of variety in in Frontier, but um, I think it's the fact that a lo- it also uses a lot of location. Yes, and Frontier shooting. is quite claustrophobic, especially when you're on possibly the same set redressed as other sets. Yeah, and and don't get me wrong, yeah, yeah, which is true. But I think Frontier Space does that very well, and it and Frontier and Space did have. Um, external shots. Yes, uh, it except, is. a car park uh, in a quarry, <laughs> <laughs> which suited the story well. You know that, but I think it was that claustrophobic feeling. Where, whereas with the Sea Devils, you know, you've got, um, you know, you, you've got the fact that it's it's set. You know, you've got the Sea Devils base. You've got the submarine. You've got um, the ocean in general. You've got the sea fort. You've got the ships. Um, you've got the prison. You've got the beach. I can almost got... feel that sea breeze right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> I mean, you, you've got all these things, and it, you know, the, you've got all this variety. Um, but again, I, I feel that the story is structured and delivered in a, in a, in such a way you don't feel like all this stuff's just getting chucked at you, and you don't feel overwhelmed. But at the same time, I think it's all you know. I think it's very impressive that the story contains all these elements and utilizes them very, very well. Um, but of course, you know, the story, um, you know, with the, with something like Doctor Who, the story is nothing without its monsters, which is the Sea Devils, and you sort of, <laughs> you sort of said. Um, maybe they're a bit jokey. I mean, okay, so let's talk about the design of the Sea Devils. What do what, what what do you think? Quite scary, you know. They move they move quite fast. Um, on the what's the what's the facility with the two men on? Oh, the Sea Fort at the beginning. The Sea Fort, yes. That's yeah. a very claustrophobic. That's a very claustrophobic um, environment. It's mm-hmm. almost a bit a bit like like the Nostromo because we have all these shots of them going up the ladders. Running around and there's this faceless creature coming after them. Yeah, and there's the and there's a lot of there's a use of you know shadows. Yes, uh, which is very effective. So in the first episode and part going into the second, you know, we see bits of the sea devil. You know, see yeah. see the hand or. And I think, see... of course, it was inevitable that we would see them, but mm-hmm. when they do emerge from the sea, we did get a full close up of the face, and that was the cliffhanger, the sting at the mm-hmm. end. I've always been happy with the look of them. I know mm-hmm. there was um, there was probably one one kind of master prop where the mouth did move and the rest of them didn't. You're kind of used to monsters where the eyes don't move, the mouth doesn't move. They just kind of talk. <laughs> it's obviously someone with a mask on, but I was fine with that. I, I like the look of them. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think it's very. I think they're a great design. You can clearly see a lot of thought that's gone into them. Uh, I think they're they're clearly being inspired by turtles, uh, you know, with their look. Which, which oh, not not the Ninja Turtles. No, not the Teenage Mutant. No, this predates them. Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles them. were inspired by the Sea Devils. <laughs> it's a well-known fact. Um, it's not. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, I, I think they're intelligent design. I, I do like the look of them, and you're right. Uh, you know, yeah, the the eyes don't blink and and they don't move or something. But the, the, but the it's still it's still very easy to to suspend your disbelief. I think that if we were being overly critical, I think on occasion when Michael E. Bryant does a very close camera shot of them, there's one in the submarine. When the sea devil's broken in, and all the all the uh, the crew members are absolutely in shock, and you have this very close shot up, uh, this very close shot of the sea devil's face, um, I'm you know still able to suspend my disbelief. But I think that if you were being overly critical, it goes mm, maybe you should have held back on that a bit because really what you're doing now is you're showing that it's made out of you know you you can see it's made out of rubber. Yeah. If if it had been um, lurking in the shadows, but still kind of the person in the room who's in control, that would have yeah. been quite menacing. Yeah, I agree, yeah I agree with that. Um, maybe uh, there are elements of the story which could have been a bit more atmospheric in that in that regard. But um, 
but the, the, the it's it's you know it's it's still good and uh you know it's you know i don't feel that the it, it ruins the effect of them but um perhaps maybe the story could have been maybe just that little bit more effective yeah um the sea devils did get an upgrade in the warriors of the deep mm. but they weren't represented as kind of the alphas were they that yeah. went that went to the Silurians, and i think this the sea devils were were really short changed there there could have been a a potential for a, a good dynamic between the two races i agree with that it's sort of funny as well because i think with the because the Warriors of the Deep is a, a Peter Davison story made in, I think it was broadcast in 83. And they've they've had to remake and slightly redesign the, the Sea Devils. Um, but trying to keep it as close as possible to that original design in this story. And it's sort of funny. I don't think it's as effective. And I don't think they're as good as the original. I mean... They're very slow. They're almost like a warrior class. Oh god, they're awesome. Yeah, jeez, the pace. Uh, but the problem is, it's sort of the other thing as well is, uh, I'm very aware of uh, the holes in the Sea Devil's neck in Warriors of the Deep. Yeah, because you can see that's where the actor has to look out of. Um, which I dare say was the same here, but it's much more hidden. It's not as obvious. Mm. So I think even you would think that the being remade in the 80s would maybe been a little bit better but actually i think the original ones in this story um still hold up but um i mean i don't know i don't understand too overly critical especially with the sea devils i mean michael e Bryant, the director he has you know he has great flair and achieves an awful lot uh with everything else um as he said you know he he keeps this this constant sense of pace but the direction in general is really rather good with the, with the shots and angles and so on. Um, you know, this is a very well-directed show. I've just got a message from Tim over at the the Doctor Who Missing Episodes podcast. He said, I love it. It's an absolute stone-cold classic and probably my favourite Delgado appearance. The first one I saw was when it was repeated in on BBC Two in the early 90s, which was really exciting. Even if it's partly a return of the Silurians, Hulk's juxtaposition of the conflicting interests of the four interested parties makes for great tension in storytelling. My favourite of Series 9. Sorry, Season 9. P.S. I hope you guys like it too, otherwise I'm going to sound like a right twonk. <laughs> oh, that's a word you don't hear often enough. I think we need to bring twonk back into uh that's not actually what I. That's not actually what you said. I toned it down. Just kidding. <laughs> I was going to say, hang on, I've just read that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, besmirching people's good character like that, Rob. It's a disgrace. Anyway, um, no, obviously we 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 do love the story. Hang on, what was? It? Yes, um, I think it, it's sort of funny. Yes, it's in many respects it is a it is a retelling of Doctor Doctor Who and the Silurians, but um. But it doesn't come across that way because it has its own tone. Um, Doctor Who and the Silurians, which is, you know, it's a, again, is another bloody cracking good story. But that it deals with the same themes as the Sea Devils, which is, you know, it's to do with uh, racism and land ownership, if you like, to make it sound really boring. But um, it, um, it, it has a lot of threat, that story. 
And I think the mo the most iconic bit in it is when the the Silurians re uh, release a deadly virus uh, on humanity, and you're just seeing it spread and people dying from it. That you know, there's there's a there's a very dark tone to that story, whereas the Sea Devils, because the and war as well is is another theme. Uh, and the Sea Devils pretty much takes that base, that that same premise, and and retells it, but in a much more entertaining way. It's sort of think of it this way: Doctor Who and the Silurians is alien. The Sea Devils is aliens. Ooh, interesting if analogy. You, yeah, do you see where I'm coming from with that? You kind of yes. Um. You know, the Sea Devils is uh, is takes what the Silurians did, but puts it in a much more popular way. It's much more entertainment. Um, it's 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 pop, if you like. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, and especially when it's done incredibly well with such style, which uh, the Sea Devils has. The other point that uh, that he made there was with it saying that this might be Roger Delgado's best uh, appearance in the show. I'm just trying to... I'm just quickly trying to um, mentally go through the other stories that he, that he was in. And that might be the case. I think for, I think certainly it's between... I mean, Roger Delgado ne never put a foot wrong. And every time he appears in the story, he's bloody brilliant. And it is certainly one of the highlights. But I think in terms of being at the top of his game, I think... I think it's certainly between this and funny. I think also frontier and space. I can't quite decide between the two. It's tricky, um, but Roger, Roger Delgado is fantastic, and 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 the master again, the master is is a highlight of of, of this story. Uh, you know, I am he's very much a part of it, but um, I think that's another because the master is a great character, and Roger Delgado. Who's my still remains my favorite version of the character? Um, I think that's probably one of the reasons again why I prefer the Sea Devils over the, over the Silurians. Although I still love the Silurians, but this obviously um, I regard as better. And I think one of the reasons is because of the Master. And I mean, he he's really sort of like leading the plot. He's the one that get, you know, and uh, furthering the Sea Devils and helping them with with, with what with what they want to achieve. Yeah. Um, and again, it's and it's interesting as well of of how he takes over Trenchard. You know, Tren you know he he lies to Trenchard, and Trenchard is this. Um, you know, you think this guy's an absolute. I was going to say Twazik, but I'm going to say Twonk instead. You think Trenchard's an absolute Twonk, um, and because you know he's he's helping the master, but actually he he in many ways becomes quite a, a sympathetic and, and and pitiful character really and you feel sorry for him because you know, he Trenchard has this military history which funny enough the, the doctor sort of mocks a little bit when he's talking to the master in the first episode uh, and he you know Trenchard is patriotic and he in he he wants to do the right thing but of obviously the irony being he does the wrong thing by helping the master but the master recognized Trenchard's um, patriotism of wanting to protect um, Britain against its its enemies, you know, because the master has told him about these enemy agents. And that doesn't and become it, clear till near the end, does it? 
Yeah, yeah, but that's true. And so actually, Trenchard feels like this... Uh, I mean, Clive Morton really, you know, plays the character really well. And he sort of, in, in some respects... I mean, I, do, I don't know whether this was deliberate. Uh, it may have been. Because he has a sort of look of Winston Churchill, doesn't he, a little bit? Would you say? Yes, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if that... I mean, he's a, he's a good actor, and you, you know, obviously they would have picked him because he's a good actor, but I wonder if, if, if part of his appearance was... If his appearance of maybe looking a bit Churchillian was was part of that, but um, it gives that character richness and a depth. And when you see him at the end, you know when the sea devils are are attacking the prison in order to free the master, and Trenchard's there at the front lines with his men uh, to defend it. Um, and then he, you know, he's he's dead. Um, you know, it's it's tragic, and you you feel for it, and uh, and, and the other thing as well is, you know, he was he was also friend with Captain Hart, which which who's another fantastic character in this. I mean, he's he's very much there to to help uh, the Doctor. You know, he's an ally in this story. Yeah, well, golf buddies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, he, you know Hart and Trenchard were, you know, as you said, golf buddies, and there's a big scene about that and all the rest of it, which is which is tremendous fun as well. Um, but that adds something else. And actually, talking about Captain Hart, again, he's he's this great character, and there are moments when you you can totally understand why he you know would find believing the Doctor a bit difficult or find dealing with the Doctor difficult. There's a great bit when. Uh, the doctor's just hounding the man and all you know captain hart wants to do the right thing and is doing his job but the doctor's just at it hounding him and captain hart for a brief moment just goes you know he's basically going oh for god's sake man what the hell do you want and then he composes himself there's just again these nice little character moments no i would say probably with one exception i'll get onto him in a second but i think every character in this story has a depth and a richness mm. in their in their performance uh, in, in how they're written and their performance, I think the exception to that is Walker, uh, the civil servant who pops up, um, yes. who who just just wait, you know, you know, at this point in the story because we're nearing the end, the Doctor's trying to negotiate a peace between the Sea Devils and the humans, and then Walker's just waltzes in and just yeah, bomb the crap out of them, and puts complete pay to that uh, the possibility of peace. Um, Do you think his purpose was just? Um, to service the plot, yeah, uh, in that respect, uh, with a bombing, yeah, and I mean Malcolm Hulk was v- because of his political leanings, he was very much of the left, um, and his attitudes towards war was it should be avoided at all costs, and you see that in his stories, and you see it here, um, and so the man that perf- personifies going into war with no thought whatsoever is this um, broad caricature character. But again, it sort of works. Um, but it's sort of funny as well. There's, there is a... You know, Malcolm Hulk has fun with that character. Because he comes in, takes charge, instigates a wall, or almost instigates a wall. Um, but then there's also seen to be a complete coward. Because, again, this goes into something else uh, which I want to talk about, which is Joe. We talked about uh, her character in Frontier in Space and how strong she was. It's here as well. Um, of course, she's fact- very physical in this story. Um, and also, 
she's got a very tight relationship with the doctor you know they're very in sync it's the kind of relationship where you'd say a sentence and the other person would finish it you'd start a sentence mm. and the other person would finish it because they've got um, when she's at the window and she's uh, miming you know he, he really knows what you're saying they're very, yes. they're very in sync yeah and um, I mean the Joe rescues the doctor in this story yeah and in fact, that's one of my favourite bits uh, in here as well, you know. Um, she's had to do a runner because the guards are, are after her. So she's actually got to protect herself, but also go back to the prison and rescue the doctor. And uh, I, again, I love all that. I love, um, I love one, how, that, how that's written into the story. I love how Katie Manning performs all, all that. I like how, Mike, how Brian directs all those scenes. I like Malcolm Clark's music for all that bit as well. Um... Sort of this music that sort of like bubbles along, um, you know. Th- I love all. I love all that. Um, so Joe's this incredibly strong, dynamic character who's again not on the sidelines, and you know she throws herself in, and as I said, rescues the Doctor. But also, but obviously, that also helps the Doctor to create a diversion, and then she rescues um, Captain Hart and Walker, who have been imprisoned in this this uh, communications room. And her and Hart hop it off. But then Walker, um, like, re- you know, when I was talking about how he was a coward just a few moments ago, uh, there's a sea devil. Uh, and he, Walker could have easily escaped, but he freaks out and then locks himself back into the room. So, so this man, yeah. So this man who was uh, who's very keen to just instigate a war is, uh, is also quite cowardly. So Malcolm, he's not the most... Um, three-dimensional character but um because basically his big character characteristic is the man eats an awful lot he's constantly eating food uh and has this thing about toast and he, he doesn't see the flaw in detonating a nuclear bomb off the south coast of england but, i mean the rat man's a raving lunatic he's an idiot so yeah he's this very broad broadly written character and martin but martin uh Bowie, who plays the character you know plays it well and Malcolm Hooks clearly had an awful lot of fun with that character because he you know he's the one who just waltzes into this scenario and he's not an expert on anything and um uh you know he's just this this pompous civil servant which again um the uh Doctor Who and the Silurians touched upon it again it's it's sort of very much the, the same thing but done in in a much more entertaining way so even though I think Walker is the exception to all the other richly defined characters in the in the story, you know he still has a place in it, uh, and still still strikes a chord and still is still highly memorable. We've just had a response on Twitter from Marcus Scarman, similar to Inferno in that it effectively creates a world similar but different to our own. The prison setting showcases this perfectly. Handlebar mustaches and capes it comfortably next to fence and swords uh, readily available in the walks. It's superb. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is a thing. It's, uh, I mean, you've got this, yeah. But we do get a great sword fight, and I, I'm a sucker for a sword fight. We don't have enough of them. No. Um, do you think they were intentionally missing each other? <laughs> I think so. I, mean, I, I know the- in reality it was a choreographed TV show. 
where mm. Pertwee's dodging out of each sword blow <laughs> on the mm-hmm. table. Um, but in universe, um, do you think they were really having a go at each other, or just having a bit, bit of sport? I think probably a bit of both, really. I mean, it does look tremendous fun, uh, and with the exception of the cliffhanger when the master throws a knife at the doctor, uh, which is is a good cliffhanger in terms of how it's shot. Um, the fight is more played for, I mean, not for laughs as such, but it's clearly a lot of fun. I mean, there is one bit which does make me chuckle, which is uh, the doctor manages to get uh, the master on his back and then sort of like does this runner and then sort of like does this full circle back into the room, which the master hasn't seen. So when he gets up and thinking that the, the doctor's behind this curtain, just starts sort of chopping away at this curtain. As if he was just stood there. Yeah, as if he was just stood there, and then the doc- not realizing that the doctor's behind him now, and just going, "I wouldn't do that if I were you. That's government property." It's, I mean, it's not a serious, uh, life-threatening uh, sword fight, but it's tremendous fun, and I, d- I yeah. do like it. In and fact, course, um, the doctor throws him his sword back at one point. Yes, after he's, you know, I I find physical exercise always makes me hungry. Then stuffs his face with a sandwich. Talking of which, funny enough, because one thing, um. Oh, you're not hungry, are you? <laughs> time for a break. <laughs> time for a break. I've always hungry. No, it's um, it's funny. As a kid, I always th- I thought this scene was funny, and it's clearly supposed to be played for laughs. But looking at it now, it seems the Doctor comes across as a bit insensitive. There's a scene where they're in Captain Hart's office, and Joe's been given a plate of sandwiches for the Doctor just to snatch them off, and goes, "What do you think this is? A picnic?" And then just starts stuffing his face with these sandwiches. Then offers them round to everybody else to the point where there's nothing anymore. And, it and then circles Joe has, back to Joe. Circles back to Joe and it's just this empty plate. And um, Officer uh, Blythe has to order some more sandwiches. It. I mean, it's clearly supposed to be funny, but... <laughs> look at it now. The Doctor comes across as a bit of a prat in that scene, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. <laughs> But anyway, yeah. So back to that so far. I, I do like that so far. And yeah, I think I think it's both of them having a lo- yeah, more, f- more fun than anything. You know, I mean, when you look at some of the lines that they say to each other. It's uh, But I do like that. It's uh, it's great. Yeah, good bit of banter. Mm. Um, Marcus Scarman also said, um, with regard to the Master watching the clients, when I asked, did the Master really think it was an alien life form? And he said... The master's completely bullshitting him. Um, the master of Trenchard. Um, that sigh he delivers says it all. I believe he was deciding if he should live or die when the sea devils attack. He was a good <laughs> servant that allowed the master to keep his edge and build his plans. That comment sealed his fate. <laughs> love it. Oh, I love that, Marcus. Uh, I thought you died at the end of Pyramids of Mars. Um... No, that's that's uh, yeah, I like that. The fact that the master says this man's got no sense of humor or wit. He needs to die. Um, I like that interpretation. I'm going with that. Him and the Ogrons. <laughs> but we're on a course for Earth. But of course we are. We. Oh, I love. <laughs> I'll watch Frontier in space now. Oh, um, I want that line in our opening titles. If we when, next thing we revamp it. <laughs> <laughs> We need to. <laughs> but we're on a course for Earth. Well, naturally, because we're... Ch- oh, shut up and let me think, will you? Uh, 
<laughs> two moments I'm making a note for that. Yeah. No, I think I think that's the thing as well. It's uh I think sometimes when we think about the character of the master, um we le- I think people forget there's a lot of humour there. And uh I think certainly with Roger Takaro's master, it's oh it's played superbly and they are rememberable and they're just generally hilarious. Um <laughs> Right, which scene's better? That one in Frontier in Space, we're on a course for... Uh, or uh, the master watching the Clangers? Oh, um, Clangers is more memorable, but um, no, the Ogron scene tops it. <laughs> I have to agree with you. I think the Ogron scene's just generally hilarious. I mean, you can watch that out of context and it would just uh, have me on the floor laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's great. So yeah, because uh, usually when we uh, review these stories, we tend to do them on an episode uh, breakdown. But I've sort of, I've sort of talked about the story sort of in broad strokes and talking about it in, in more in general terms. Is there anything, Rob, that you think I've missed? I don't think so. I think we've covered it, covered a lot of things. Well, actually, just on, just on one thing. So when we come to the, the end of the story. So the Doctor has attempted to make peace, uh, but has failed. So he has to do the next best thing, which is, well, if the Sea Devils are allowed, you know, because they're now willing to go to war with humans and all the rest of it. So they have to be destroyed. He essentially does what the Brigadier decided to do at the end of Silurians. Uh, but whereas the Doctor was devastated by that decision, the Doctor has now done that the, so for all the sort of the i mean don't get me wrong there has been drama in 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 the story but it has had this this very entertaining um way of going about it i think the story ends on quite a downbeat way but i don't think that's at the, the show's detriment I, I still think it's it's very good um where the doctor has um you know blown up the, uh, the sea devil's base and the master finally escapes to fight another day, um, and I, you know, so it's, it's in some respects it's quite a downbeat ending, but I think it's absolutely great. And again, I love how it's shot and how it's cut. You know, the, the master uh, escapes on a, um, a hovercraft, um, so you see him waving at the doctor, and you just see the, the doctor looking. Um, you know, looking into the, you know, staring at the distance, staring into the distance where the master's escaping from, and you just hear, because the uh, the master hypnotized someone, and you're just hearing, "I will obey, I will obey," you know, and that sort of, and then there seems to be like an echo put onto it, and that's how that's the final things, that, the final thing that we hear before then the the, the credits roll, and I think it's a very, I think it's a very effective ending. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said at the beginning, I also think the story is incredibly iconic with the look of the Sea Devils. But there's a number of scenes, some of them we've talked about. One of them, of course, is um, you know the, the way that the, the Sea Devils emerge from, from the sea. And that, that scene with the um, where the Doctor and Joe have to escape from them. Escape from the Sea Devils, sorry. On the beach. a minefield. Yeah. Yes, on the beach, yeah. Um, I think that's probably one of my all-time favourite scenes. Yeah, uh, same know, it's tense it's exciting and again it's iconic it's you know it it's one of those things that just seared into your memory and it it always it's it's one of those scenes again which always seems to crop up in uh doctor who documentaries or whatever you know mm. when they compile 
uh, clips from good classic Doctor Who stories. You know, that one always seems to crop up. I love the way Pertwee just dive bombs on the um, the barbed wire. Yes. <laughs> just, just, and then Joe just steps through. Yeah. yeah, there's part of me that uh, I've always been tempted to go, oh, I should would try that, that work? I don't think it, it would work, Liam. <laughs> but then there's part of me going, but what if it doesn't? I might puncture a lung or something. Uh, <laughs> just stupidity. Oh, wait, but, you know, you... I, think, I think that's my favourite screwdriver. Yeah, and I, I love the sound of it. Uh, mm. You know, the sound that it makes before it uh, sets the, the minefields yeah. off, the, didn't, the did, off. Didn't it turn up a few years back? Um, Prop Store London um, found it in Pertwee's jacket pocket. Yes, I think it... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, and it was, I think it was purely by surprise, because I think they were... Weren't they auditioning, auctioning the, uh, the jacket? Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, and then it was just like, oh, and we've... It, We've also found the song Screwdriver. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I remember that. Um, so, sorry, I just wanted to wrap up those, those last fo- uh, those last uh, few points. So, from you, c- quick conclusion and a score. Oh, I feel like my hands are tied here. I've put myself in this position, but I, I can only give it a 9 out of 10. It, I guess it does have its flaws, but I don't know. It is a 9 out of 10. <laughs> no, that's, uh, you know, that's still pretty good. I'm trying to think... What did I give Frontier in Space? Do you remember? I think it was an eight. Right, okay. Well, funny enough. Is that right? I'll twist your arm and you wait, no chance. No, today. <laughs> Stick your nine. Um, well, funnily enough, I've, I've given the Sea Devils exactly the same score then. I've given it eight out of ten. Right, okay. Because um, I think it's a cracking good story. I don't think it's perfect. There are one or two things which I think... I mean, one of them we talked about sometimes. I think maybe the story wasn't as atmospheric as it could could have been. Mm-hmm. Um but it's still a, a you know it's still a great uh, story with a lot you know with tension in the right places and drama and so on. So yeah, I think that's why I, I've taken a couple of points off it. But it's still good and it's 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 still you know it's one of my all time favourites. And certainly I think it's. Um, I mean the Pertwee era has an awful lot of bloody good stories in it. So you know if someone were to say, no spearhead from space or Inferno or. Because Peladon or David Daleks, you know, they're the, you know, I'd listen and go, but yeah, because I love those stories as well. Um, but this one edges it because I just, uh, I think it has everything that the Pertwee era did and does it superbly well. Yeah, it doesn't have unit in, but it has the Royal Navy yeah. in it. You know, it, it, they use it really well. There's a sense, there's a, there's a scale and a scope. It's got the Master in it. It's got iconic monsters in it. Um, the Doctor's great and Joe's fantastic. It's got the diving bell, the the submarines, the ships. It's got all the hovercraft. <laughs> yeah. um, yes, speaking of the um, final scene with the hovercraft, there's a bit of a dodgy moment where um, we we'll have a shot of the rubber the rubber Delgado mask mm. right after Delgado's actual face. <laughs> um, I know it doesn't quite gel together. Um, mm. I, I like to think that when we saw Delgado lying there, we were seeing the influence of the hypnotism. And then when the fit mask is pulled off, we're seeing the reality. Oh, I like that. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. That's good. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, Rob. I can't, I can't go anymore. I remember earlier this year, do you remember when we were allowed to move around and travel and stuff? Oh, yeah. Uh... Vaguely. <laughs> Yeah, very good. Back in January, uh, I was down in London for for work and um, had a had a meeting to attend. And so the following day, when I was uh, needed to come back up, I was on the tube t- to King's Cross, and 
I bumped into one of my favourite... Uh, well, he's a journalist and uh, he's also written a number of books. I went, oh, I've, I've got to talk to him. So, so I did. And I nothing towards him because he was absolutely great and very friendly. But I got really nervous. And he'd written this book. And what I, what I wanted to say was... Um, you know, because oh, I've read several of his books, but there was this this one that I wanted to focus on, and I went, oh, you know, really, what I wanted to go is, I've read your book. I think you know, you know, I'm sort of like be a bit more, you know, be eloquent about why um, why I thought the book was good, but I couldn't. I got terribly nervous, and I went, oh, just to let you know, I've read this book, and he, and he was just like, oh yes, and I just want you to know, I thought it was really good. <laughs> That's all I could manage. Oh, <laughs> just. Just that was it. That's that's my criti- so yeah. Sorry, Rob. It's it's the same thing. It's uh, not like you're making me nervous. It's just I can't, I've got nothing to add. It's a good point. I agree. You agree. That's it. <laughs> We're good. Oh, sorry. Um, we did get in contact with Katie Manning on Twitter. Oh yes, we did. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how on earth we forgot her. Oh, because she, she's absolutely wonderful and she responds to uh, pretty much everyone that she can on Twitter. And there we were nearly forgetting it. Oh, we're taking the poor lass for granted. Anyway, um, we asked, uh, we got in contact with Katie Manning and said that we were going to be reviewing this story. And asked if she had any abiding memories of the Sea Devils. And as I said, Katie Manning very kindly uh, responded. And she said, because uh, we also said, you know, we'll hope you're enjoying the sunshine while it lasts. Tonight we're talking about one of our favourites, the Sea Devils. Do you have any abiding memories? To which she replied, Wow, too many to tweet, but my brain is mush, been out in the heat all day. Uh, And this is her memory. My suit shrank, so it was really tight. Told not to get it wet, but John Pertwee and I went for a ride in the sea. Doe. Also, be very careful to press the right button in a hovercraft. Because that's true. We actually see Katie Manning go into a hovercraft and start it up. Um, I want to know more. Yeah, maybe she she pressed the button and put the the windscreen wipers on or something. Because don't they just don't they come on just like pointlessly? Maybe that was it. <laughs> oh, yes. I don't know. But uh, but that's great. So her, mystery so solved she... after all these years. <laughs> that's an exclusive, right here. <laughs> yeah, exclusive, right here. So yeah, so yeah, so I love that. But basically, she pressed the wrong button on a hovercraft. Lord knows what happened, <laughs> and her suit shrank. <laughs> 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 Which is another thing as well. I love the costumes in this. It's it's uh, and, and Katie Manning's in particular because it is very distinctive. This uh, this all white suit with um, brown markings for where the pockets are. Oh, are you? Yeah. It seems seems to get smaller <laughs> as the scene goes. As the, as the story goes enough, on. It's just like God. That know, that's that suit's a bit tight, but okay. <laughs> now we know why. It shrank. <laughs> so Katie Manning's actually answered an awful lot. Uh, so thanks for that uh, Katie if you're listening yeah thank you but anyway as always thank you for getting in touch so um, that's us having reviewed our favourite stories for the Pertwee era obviously this with the Sea Devils and and Rob with Frontier and Space Uh, so naturally the next uh, Doctor we're going to be looking at is Sylvester McCoy no it's not it's Tom Baker so our next podcast we will be discussing Rob's favourite Tom Baker's story. Do you want to tell them what it is uh, yet? Yeah, go on. It is City of Death. Ooh, a classic and uh, a very good choice. So I look forward to talking about that. Yep, same here. So everyone, get in touch. Tell us your thoughts on City of Death. Give us a rate, rate and review. 
as well. Yeah, on, on, on Apple Podcasts is the best place to do it, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It, uh, if you're able to, uh, able to do that, we would be extremely grateful. It, um, if if you enjoy our podcast, it, it gives... Or just say hello. Yeah, just say hello. I mean, it'd be great to hear from you, but if, if you're able to uh, give us a, a ranking, only bother if it's a good one. Yeah. If it's a crap one, uh, then don't bother. Kindly sod off. But um, if 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 you kindly give us a, a good rating, we'll be uh, would extremely appreciate it. If you if you enjoy our podcast, it uh, it makes it easier for for others to to find it as well to listen. So hopefully, it will um, increase our listenership. So we would be extremely grateful for that. Yeah. Um, and as Rob said, get in contact with us about uh, uh, your thoughts on City of Death or even just nice memories of, you know, back in the day when you could travel and maybe you visited Paris, uh, been to the Louvre, seen the Mona Lisa, wonder why she has no eyebrows. Yes. But anyway, plenty to discuss uh, next time. Uh, but until then, folks. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>